Father, I pray that you would help us to see today the greatness of your love, that people like us could be called the sons of God. Many of us, Lord, can talk about these concepts, but the realities are somewhere else. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to connect the truth of who Christ is and what he's done, of how faith connects us to Christ in the gospel, and how we are able to enter into the fullness of all these truths about enjoying the love of the Father as your sons. Father, I pray for those who are here today who have a hard time and who are under the heavy <clears throat> sense of shame and the accusations of how they are failing again and again to do what they know they ought to do. We pray, Father, they might sense the greatness of the love that Christ has for them and that we might understand the wonderful truths of the gospel today. We ask for your help by the Spirit. We ask, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to read uh, at this time Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 23 to the end of the chapter. I've decided to not finish all of these verses today because I believe there's so many rich insights. I'm going to slow down and take a couple of sermons on some of these uh, latter verses. So let's begin in verse 23 of Galatians 3. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What is the best way that you would say you can convince someone that you care about deeply to abandon what is wrong, to abandon what is destructive. And on the other hand, what would you see as the best way to convince that person to embrace what is true and what is liberating? One approach, of course, too oftentimes taken by parents only in this approach, is to threaten them with consequences. Now, this may or may not be effective depending on the situation, but another approach and a very impressive approach in many ways is the, is the approach of using persuasion. You could present a series of convincing arguments designed to demonstrate several of the weaknesses of these particular beliefs or ideas that the person has and that they've been persuaded to adopt. And in so offering those assessments, that's essentially what's happening here in the book of Galatians, the epistle of Galatians, where we find Paul, the Apostle Paul, attempting to persuade the members of the Galatian churches, there were three or four of them, and he's trying to persuade them to relinquish the current way of thinking and acting that they have begun to move in. 
He calls them in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, His children. So there's no question that He cares for them deeply. They are His spiritual children. He brought them to faith in Christ. And they've come under the influence of a group of Jewish legalists who have urged them to modify and change the gospel of grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And as in the first two chapters, it is true that those first two chapters we looked at in this particular epistle, Paul devotes a lot of time to emphasizing the fact that he is a person with God-given authority as a capital A apostle. And he goes through and explains all that. But he does more than that in this text. He now is in the part of the book where he goes beyond demanding compliance. He is now including a number of persuasive considerations designed to not only appeal to their minds, but he's appealing to their hearts as well. And Paul is deeply concerned for the spiritual welfare of the church members under his care. So he carefully lays out a number of logical, a number of biblical arguments for their consideration. And he earnestly tries to convince them to renounce all attempts to gain acceptance before God by adding to their simple faith and trust in Jesus. And so they've been adding to that the idea of self-improvement. They've been adding to that the idea of keeping the biblical rules, the law. May I suggest to you that what we're reading in the book of Galatians, for some of us, we think, what is the, this has nothing to do with my life. You're talking about something irrelevant. May I suggest to you what we're reading in this text is discipleship being acted out right before our very eyes. It is taking people who have bought into things that are not true, coming alongside of them because we care and we're deeply committed to them, and we patiently and persistently point them to the truth of God's Word, helping them to understand and be freed to live in the light, as God is in the light, to be discipled. And I hope that there are not too many of us sitting back assuming that this book has nothing to do with you and me. I hope you'll see that by the end of this sermon, there is something to be learned in this book in numerous ways, but this particular passage in your life and in my life. Because Paul is really addressing two kinds of people here, two categories of people. There are those who seek acceptance before God by striving to become a better person. Many people live their lives that way. Many religions of the world are all about becoming a better person in the eyes of God. And so rather than, that's one way of living, But there are other people who also live life and they are clinging to Christ by faith, saying, I know and acknowledge all my failings and I'm treasuring the gospel of grace alone. The problem is that some of us who are in the latter camp, we need to hear the gospel again and again because some of us, even though we affirm the gospel in our heads, we often slip like the Galatian believers into living under the law. We fail to think through the destructive dangers of maintaining a law orientation before God. And so we, unfortunately, I myself, many of us, we forget the incredible privileges that are ours once we are united to Christ by faith. And the true gospel of grace alone calls us to consider again and again and again the real purpose of the law. The real purpose of the law, which is taught in this text. And he contrasts that now with the privileges we have 
in Christ in the gospel of grace alone. So let's look at first first point here in the text, verses 23-24. We read, Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has come become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Point number one, our condition prior to believing the gospel is we're under law. Our condition prior to believing the gospel, we're under law. Now notice that Paul here, in the beginning of these verses, he speaks in a plural sense. We, our, us. He's doing that to say, this is my background. I know what you're talking about. I've lived this. I've been where you are because he's saying many people to whom he's writing, they put a lot of emphasis on the external indicators of being a Jewish, their Jewish identity. They were circumcised. They would follow all these regulations that set them apart from people who are non-Jews. And so he's speaking to that particular group of people. And he tries to help them understand that before faith came and I think what he means here is the translation is not helpful because the word faith there is a definite faith, the faith. It is the faith. Before the faith come, he means the Christian faith. The Christian faith that was fully revealed in the incarnational ministry of Jesus. Before the faith, the Christian faith came, they faced two inevitable realities when they attempted to follow the directives of the law. They couldn't escape these. The first consequence of trying to keep the law in order to gain acceptance before God was that all such people are imprisoned by the law. Imprisoned by the law. You see, Paul says that when you're trying to keep all these rules, the law, in effect, begins to function in relationship to you like a cruel and heartless prison warden. And for all who are trying to keep that law... All you're going to face is continuous reminders that you are guilty lawbreaker and that they are, you're in prison, you're in like a, like a debtor's prison because you're unable to pay the debt that you owe to God. And that warden is just going to keep you held right there saying, uh-uh, you haven't paid up. You keep owing God because you keep failing to do what the law says. It's interesting that this word in verse 23, being shut up, <clears throat> is the same sense found in Paul's experience in Damascus. When Paul first came to faith in Jesus as his Messiah, he had a dramatic conversion found in Acts chapter 9. And in that particular chapter, we read that soon after that, once his friends and other fellow Jewish uh, uh, brothers and sisters learned that he would now become to embrace Jesus as his Messiah, they were not real thrilled about that. Matter of fact, they thought that was outrageous, enough such, that they plotted to put Paul to death. Just like he had been plotting to arrest and put people to death who were followers of Jesus. And it says there that they were watching the gates day and night so that they might put Paul to death. Watching the gates of the city. It's a walled city. So you want to make sure nobody escapes, what do you do? You put people there at the gate saying nobody's going to get out by the name of Paul. He's not going to escape this place. We've got him here inside the walls. So what did Paul do in order to get out of that city? Does anybody remember? They, laid, they let him down through a basket at night along the outside of the wall. Now, the point here is that Paul was confined to the city. He was kept under restraint. They didn't want him to escape and leave that city. 
And the law does the same thing to those of us who seek to find acceptance before God as we keep on following the law. We find ourselves left being restrained by our failings. Think about it. The law leaves us with no options of escaping the consequences of our moral failures. Because why? Because if you measure our failures by the high standards of God's word and God's law, you become aware that you are a lawbreaker. And because we're all lawbreakers, the law makes sure that you never find freedom from your past. You never find hope for your future. Why? Because you've got all these issues about how you've broken the law. You've got to pay that debt. And therefore, we remain guilty, helpless prisoners in desperate need of a deliverer. Now, that's the first picture he, plays, he, he portrays of someone who's seeking to follow the laws of God in order to somehow find acceptance with God. You're imprisoned. Secondly, notice in this text that Paul adds a second way the law negatively impacts those who seek to follow it in order to be justified before God. We live under the guardianship of the law. The guardianship of the law. Now, this is a concept that may not be familiar to us, but it was very familiar to Paul's audience because they were familiar with this guardianship or the tutor that would be a familiar uh, everyday example in the Greek world. Most well-to-do families, when their child, if they had a boy that's about the age of six, they would have gone through the process of hiring an older gentleman, meaning a person who can't do a lot of heavy lifting, can't do a lot of work anymore, but he's an older gentleman, they would assign this older gentleman who was thought of as a, a slave, he was, he was uh, hired to do this, um, and he was a pedagogue, is the Greek word, that's from where we get the word pedagogue, pedagogy, and so he was like this tutor, assigned to protect this boy and to supervise the boy from the age of six till he reached adulthood. Now this tutor, this guardian, we must understand, he was not a teacher. He was not there to sit down with the child and instruct him and give him one-on-one -on -one instruction. That was not his purpose. His purpose was to discipline the child. And archaeologists have found a number of images from Greek and Roman archaeology remains, and they often find this this guardian, this tutor, depicted as having one, he has a rod in his hand. He was the disciplinarian. And he was the one who was chastising, rebuking the child that was assigned to him for that period of time from age six to adulthood. And so when the child reached adulthood, no more need for the guardian, no more position over that child any longer by this man. He would be therefore let go, and the boy would then assume full adult sonship. It's interesting that Paul also alludes to this same concept of this idea of tutors in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul speaks to his children there, his misbehaving children in Corinth, if you will, the spiritual children in that church, and he reminds them, he says, although there might be countless tutors that I could raise up to help you, he says, there's only one loving spiritual father, and I am that person to you. He says in verse 21 of chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He's saying, you want me to be your tutor or do you want me to be a loving father speaking truth into your life? You've got to listen to me here. 
Now, I've been here long enough to listen to some of you tell your stories. And I've been intrigued, somewhat saddened, that some of you have told me about your experiences at parochial schools. Now, I'm not going to say that every parochial school is like this. I'm just talking about what I've heard from some of you, and you're telling, your my sto- you're telling me your stories. You've told of being deathly afraid. I mean deathly afraid of being caught doing something wrong because the nuns would be strict enforcers of the rules that they had in their particular school. And they would walk around with a little rod or a little ruler of some kind. They'd smack your open palm of your hand or on top of your hand and whatever it took to get you to get in line, to discipline you, to correct you. And that's why J.B. Phillips, when he translates this particular text, he uses the term uh, from verse, 20, uh, verse uh, 24, he uses the term strict governess. Some of you get the idea, here's a very strict, non-caring, just a very cold person who just, you do something wrong, boom, you're going to get it. You know, that's the kind of image that he's portraying here. And let's be honest, most people, if you lived under this kind of guardianship, where the person primarily was involved in rebuking you, in disciplining you, in never offering any kind of love, not too much encouragement, hardly any compassion at all, they're just doing their job, they're not related to you at all, let's be honest, we would be thrilled, wouldn't we, to finally get rid of this person and move on and become an adult, right? Who wants to stay in that kind of role underneath a tutor of this kind? That's what Paul's trying to emphasize here. The law, he says, was never designed or intended to make us acceptable to God. The primary role of the law was to serve as a tutor, a guardian, pointing out our failings. It was designed to serve as a way of chastising us for our endless infractions. That's what the law does, constantly chastising us, correcting us, pointing out our faults. And isn't it true we continually fail to do what God tells us to do in his law? We've talked about that previous weeks. If you debate that, listen to a couple of my previous sermons, and I'll show you how that's true of all of us. And the law, like this Greek or Roman tutor, was never meant to be a permanent understanding of how you relate to God. God gave the law to Israel to lead them to the Messiah, the only one who was capable of keeping the law. And the law was meant to bring to our attention the futility of trying to gain acceptance by our attempts to somehow keep it. It was never meant to serve as a means of gaining approval before God. So before a person comes to Christ, the law is meant to tutor them, to tutor you in such a way that you will desire in your heart to somehow find escape from that. I want to get out from under this. This this tutorship is killing me, always correcting me, always pointing out my faults. And so rather than striving to do all it demands and and face all those consequences of your moral failings, it makes you long to say, I want to find somebody who will rescue me from this tutelage. That's Christ. It's to point you to Christ. And that's indeed what Paul does, my friend. And the second point here, it's so significant what he's doing here saying, what are you doing going back to the law to be your tutor? Don't you understand? That's that's just the whole, doesn't make any sense. He says, listen, have you forgotten, point number two, our privileges after believing the gospel? Rather than being under law, he says, now you're in Christ. 
the privileges after believing the gospel, you're in Christ. And so we read in verse 25. But now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Praise God. <laughs> I would think most people would be hollering out saying, hey, let's celebrate, let's have a party. Now that's a real bar mitzvah, you know, say I'm getting out of all that stuff. I have a reason to celebrate. I'm out from underneath all of this kind of tutelage. And he says in verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, when we talk about our privileges, the first thing I want to emphasize here, and there will be numbers, uh, we'll add additional ones next week and the week after that maybe. First of all, for today's purposes, in relationship to God, the privileges that we enjoy in relationship to God is sonship. Sonship. See, Paul not only points out the limited role of the law, its purpose to lead us toward the Messiah, Jesus Christ, He adds now these compelling reasons why the gospel of justification through faith, verse 24, why it exceeds exceeds any and all benefits that come from attempts to keep the law. The gospel of grace bestows amazing benefits, incredible benefits. And the gospel of grace does not require us to somehow achieve perfection or improve ourselves by attaining some high-level performance before God will then finally accept us. Instead, God grants to us on the basis of grace as a result of our being united to Christ by faith. He gives us this new status, the status of being a full-fledged son of God, a new identity. We're no longer children under a tutelage of some taskmaster that's just correcting us all the time. We're now sons of God, new identity, new status. Instead of having this person pointing out all our faults and failings, those who are united to Christ by faith, um, Christ by faith alone, we are given the full status of being sons of God. Now it's essential to understand his point here, Paul's point. The gospel bestows something that we will never enjoy if we rely upon our own self-improvement if we rely on our attempts to measure up by trying harder to become better people. It's not talking about that. To those who have been trained by the strict moral tutor, the law of God, and who readily admit that they fall short of God's standard, and that they readily admit that they are lawbreakers who deserve that serve that sentence for their own moral failings, it's to these people that the gospel, in the gospel, God graciously bestows this new status as full sons of God. And with that status, my friend, comes the liberating, the liberating understanding that there is full forgiveness, there is full acceptance, there is full removal of shame before God. No longer do we face that stern tutor of the law, always smacking us, saying, listen, you failed here, you shouldn't have done that, you should be doing this. Now we enjoy the achievements that Jesus has done on our behalf. And rather than being prisoners, waiting and waiting for the final sentence, along with this long rap sheet that we have to face, we're fully embraced by God because of Jesus Christ and His perfect obedience and His substitutionary death on the cross. Now some people have read this verse, verse 26, 
And man, they like to go to town on this verse, and they read it and they say, well, this must apply to all of us. It uses the word all, you know. Let me caution you what the verse does not mean. Verse 26 does not refer to what is commonly called the universal fatherhood of God. No, what it's taught here is it's true that God has created every person. That is absolutely true. In that sense, we understand that God is our source, our creator. But here he's talking about not just of creation. He's talking about the person who enjoys the status of being a redemptive son of God. That is, they've been recreated. You say, how do you know that? Well, look what the text says. He's emphasizing the benefits of those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith. Look at the end of verse 26. Through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the key. It's interesting that when Jesus had his three years of public ministry, he ran into a number of religious people, rule-keeping people, proud of all that they were attaining, proud of the fact they'd made so much progress in their life, not really interested in anybody helping them as a rescuer or redeemer, relying on their own performance, their own attempts to gain acceptance before God with their good works, and because of their heritage going all the way back to Abraham, they would pride themselves and say, listen, we are sons of God. Do you know what Jesus said to those people? John chapter 8. He says, you're not sons of God, you're sons of the devil. Whoa. That'll wake you up and sort of switch things around in your mind, your belief system. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, listen, if you're not joined to Christ by faith before you have embraced the gospel, we are by nature children of wrath. Children who are, who are at enmity against God. And that brings us, my friend, to this audacious, I like that word, audacious promise of the gospel. John chapter 1. As many as received Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right. He gave them the full authority to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. He doesn't say to people who improve themselves, people who keep the law, become better people than somebody else. No, to those who trust Jesus Christ alone. Not people who were born of blood or, or are the will of the flesh nor the will of man. They're born of God. They have a changed heart. Not just because they have connections to people in some sort of genealogical way or ancestral way. Indeed, what we find here, the status of sonship is not bestowed upon those who have their act together or those who achieve a higher degree of moral improvement in their lives. The gospel privilege of sonship is a gift bestowed upon those who are joined by faith to Jesus Christ, period. May I suggest you just write a little note here in your margin or in your notes. You want a homework assignment? And thank God some of you said, I did the homework assignment today. I was impressed by that, by the way. Matthew 11, the last few verses of Matthew 11, read them with the understanding of of somebody who is weary, someone who's carrying a heavy burden of trying to do enough to find acceptance with God. Jesus says, come to me. You are heavy laden and burdened. You're going to find rest for your souls. Isn't that what we look look for and yearn for? Some of us are worn out trying to be good. Because you'll never be good enough, my friend, on your own. It's because of Christ who indeed did all we needed for us and died for us. So here's what I would suggest. 
If it's true the benefit of sonship is something extended to us in the gospel, it needs to be, I think, a time in which we retrain our minds, our thinking, our hearts, to come to view gospel different, sorry, to view God differently, as it were, to put on the glasses of the gospel. If I stand here looking, I see a mass of just blurry colors out there. I can't even tell that there are people out there. I'm sorry, but I just can't even tell that. Put the glasses on. Boy, I can see much more clearly who you are and your distinct identity. The same is true with the gospel. We need to put on, in a sense, gospel glasses in the sense of, rather than assuming that God is continually harping on our shortcomings, rather than assuming that God is pointing and, 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 and bringing to our attention the endless failures that we commit in not abiding by his standards, we need to fully rely upon Jesus' achievements and enjoy the liberating status of being full sons of God through the gospel. And in a number of ways, this evidences itself that we need to put these glasses on because if you look at what's going on in the horizontal dimension of life, you sometimes see this evidence of the fact that we're trying to be someone significant in the eyes of other people because we've lost sight of finding our significance before God as sons of God. What do you mean? Well, if we're honest, we come clean with our internal struggles, which is healthy, by the way. You have to admit that many times we, we place too much importance on impressing other people. I had to do this, I had to admit this the other day. We, we went, uh, Joyce and I were very blessed. We were given a free uh, overnight at the Ritz-Carlton uh, in White Plains uh, through our son and uh, our future daughter-in-law. And if you know anything about the Ritz, it's a very, very nice place, very expensive place. And people who stay there drive very nice cars usually. So we roll up in our old car, and I'm stumbling around, not used to having people grab stuff and helping you and getting your luggage, and, you know, you got to tip them. And, I mean, I'm, less, I'm in another world, folks. I am not comfortable in this. And what am I thinking about? I think, they probably think I'm a moron here. These people look at me and say, who is this guy? How did he get in this place? You know, and so I'm so conscious of what they think of me, I'm not even enjoying the fact that people are waiting on me. Now, that's just a small indication of how, what? We all struggle with this struggle that we place too much importance on impressing people by our competence or trying to impress people by our clothes or the car that we drive or the title that we have at work on our door or by our children and their achievements or whatever it is. We try to, to measure up to the expectations and standards of approval of other people. Why is that? Because we're trying to somehow say, I've lost sight of the significance that I have before God in Christ, in the gospel, and so I'm looking for it somewhere else. It's not going to satisfy, my friend. It doesn't work. It's a bondage. And this is rooted ultimately in the fact that we have lost sight of the fact that we are viewed by God in the gospel as well-pleasing in his sight. Sons of God. Why is that? Because we're united to Jesus Christ by faith. As sons of God, we're no longer imprisoned by our shame and our guilt. No longer are we under the guardianship of constant correction from the laws of God. Indeed, the gospel calls us to live out our union with Christ and enjoy the blessings that are showered upon us in grace. 
And even though we fail to live up to God's standards, and we do every day in many ways, we fail to live up to those standards. God views us as full-fledged sons of His. We are objects of His love, objects of His approval. You say, how can that be? I, I, so, I fail, I fail. Grace, my friend, grace. We relate to God on the basis of grace in the gospel. We are objects of his love and approval. My friend, it's only the gospel that brings wholeness, shalom, which means that kind of wholeness, liberation from shame and guilt, and hope-filled identity. Here's another assignment I'd like to suggest for you. Write down this text, Luke chapter 15. Take some time this week and look at, look at this parable Jesus told. He, wrote, he told the parable to people who are rule keepers, who really don't love God. They're just trying to be better people than other people. They're trying to earn their way, and they have no excitement about seeing anybody receive grace. And he speaks about this parable of a prodigal son. And the prodigal son, as you know, goes away off. He just despises his father, gets money, asks for his father, I wish you were dead, just give me the money, let me get out of here. So he leaves town, wastes it, lives the wild life. He comes to the bottom of everything. I mean, life just gets the worst of the worst. He's at, I'm, it's worse here than it is being a slave at home for my father. He says, I'm going to go home to my father, I'm going to say, just, just let me work for you. I won't be your child. He says, and so the prodigal son comes back, and, and the first thing he says to his father in the parable, this is a made-up story, he says, No longer am I worthy to be called your son. Boy, that's very significant. You understand this text we got here before us. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Is that true? Yes. In light of what he had done? Absolutely. But what does the gospel say? The gospel is the gospel of grace. And so the father does what? He cuts him off midstream doesn't let him continue his little speech, and says, listen, I want all those servants, come here, I want you to bring out a robe. Bring out the ring and put it on his finger. Put that nicest robe on him, get sandals on those feet, and what are we saying to him? I want you to go out, I want you to kill the fatted calf, I want, let's eat, let's celebrate. You are welcomed as my full-fledged son. All the benefits are right there with you on the basis of what? Grace. Grace. Grace in the gospel. And interestingly enough, the parable then continues to spend a large portion of time, we don't think about this too often, of the older son who's out away from the celebration, angry, angry, angry. All he looks at are the rules. He broke the rules. What is he doing getting back in here? It's not right. It's not right. It's not fair. And it becomes obvious that he doesn't care about his father. He doesn't give a rip about his father. And the father says to him at the end, he says, oh, this is so sad. He says, all that is mine is yours. He doesn't appreciate it. He doesn't see it as being valuable at all to him. It's a huge insight into grace. Viewing God through the lens of grace and grace in the gospel. I would urge you, my friend, as you begin each day, ask yourself this question. Who am I? Who am I? Am I a small child under a tutor today? Or am I a full son of God? Am I an imprisoned convict defined by my past failings and my guilt and my shame? 
Or am I united to Jesus Christ by faith? Am I set free from the gospel? Set free by the gospel. Am I enjoying the privilege of being a son of God who's defined by Jesus' righteousness and his selfless devotion to rescue me from my incarcerating iniquities? I have a quote in the bottom of your notes there on the sheet by Richard Hayes. And he's calling for all the sons of God to follow this radical New New Testament ethic. Here's how we should live our lives. He says, be who you are now. Now. Now, he says, verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Since we are beloved sons of God, we are given grace to live out practically what we are positionally before the Father in heaven. Rather than having small thoughts of God's love for us as if we were under the guardianship of the law, relentlessly reminded of all of our inadequate performance, let's fill our souls, let's fill our minds day by day, moment by moment, with a refreshing fountain of God's grace, continually admitting to ourselves and to other people. It's important to do this. Admit it to ourselves, to other people. Listen, I don't perform up to God's standards. I'm a broken person. I don't make it. I'm a mess. It's okay to admit that. But we are granted the privilege of sonship. And knowing we are loved by God, let us enjoy the liberating gospel and let us love those people in our lives who similarly don't meet up to the standards of what we think are right or wrong. It really changes the way you relate to people. If God loves you that way, then you can begin to start to see, oh, they broke the rule here. Oh, they didn't do what I was hoping they'd do here because they said they'd do that, but they didn't do it. i got to love them anyway because God loves me, and I keep his laws all the time, break his laws all the time. And since we are forgiven, let us forgive those who fail and who fall short. Rather than seeking power and prestige by impressing other people or using people or trying to advance ourselves or our careers or our agendas by sort of walking all over people around us, let us rest in the highly elevated status of being a son of God. Let the promises of the gospel calm our anxious thoughts by reflecting upon the wonder of being a son of God May we rest secure in God's wise provision and his sovereign control over all things. And may the fears that daily grip our hearts that lead us to vainly attempt to try to somehow control our little world, because some people are like control freaks. They're trying to control everything, every variable in their life. they got it all mapped out. They freak out when things don't go their way. Rather than be that kind of a person... May God, by His grace, point us to the larger reality that in the gospel, our Heavenly Father is truly in control. And we are, as His sons, secure in His love, no matter what. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for this rich portion of your word. Oh, how it's been so helpful for my own heart to go over the gospel again, to say, oh, how, what, how miserable it is to live under the tutelage of the law, 
to be imprisoned by my past, my failings, all the ways in which I don't do what I intend to do and, the reason, and all the ways in which I don't do what I'm supposed to be doing and having that define my identity. Lord, I pray that you'd open the eyes of every person here to see the riches, all oh, the, the wondrous riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we, we as lawbreakers would be considered and given the, the full status of being sons of God. Lord, open our eyes to see you through the lenses of grace in the gospel. Help us to treasure who you are and the love that you've shown us in the gospel through Jesus Christ. Lord, if I pray if there's somebody here today who comes this morning trying to be a better person, feeling worn out with trying to somehow get past their past and all their failings and trying to somehow get on the other side of being right with you through their attempts to do right. Lord, I pray that Jesus Christ will be the one that they are led to by the heavy-handed approach of the law. I pray, Father, you would help those of us who understand the gospel. We've received Christ by faith. Lord, help us daily to preach the gospel to ourselves. Help us to live out the gospel every day, Lord. Help us to be who we are now as we relate to the people around us who are also broken, who are also lawbreakers, who are also in desperate need of being set free from this tyranny and from the tutorship of the law. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for what he's done for us on the cross and with his perfect life lived. Lord, teach us what it is to have the riches of the gospel. Define our everyday identity with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.